too much of modernity imagines that any rule from the past is archaic and outdated. And fact is, some of them are, and some of them are outdated, but what they provided was necessary. So we need to figure out some new rules. We can't just say, well, then no rules is the best way to go. You know, we talk in the book about uh, a model for how it is that human beings move from one niche to another when one discovers that the wisdom of the ancients doesn't apply to the current environment, there's a natural process in which we bootstrap new ways of being. And so although this predicament is unlike any transition humans made before, the toolkit for dealing with such transitions is already present. Welcome to the Michaela Peterson podcast with Brett and Heather, episode 114. Brett and Heather have a new book out, a Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, Evolution and the Challenges of Modern Life. It gives information on how we can adapt to an incredibly quickly changing society and how we're not really built for this kind of life and much more. It's kind of the culmination of their life's work. It's awesome. It's just been released on the 14th and is available linked below. I love the work they do and think they're amazingly brilliant. They have a very analytical way of thinking, and they're one of the saner couple of voices that are out online right now. We spoke about evolution and biology and men and women, touched on the trans debate going on right now, monogamy versus polygamy. It was a really fun conversation. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you do, please be sure to hit subscribe. Heather, welcome to my podcast. Thank you for having us, Michaela. Yes, thanks. Thank you guys so much for coming on. I'm so excited for this conversation. It's very nice to see you guys over Zoom, but it feels like closer than my normal distance on social media. So nice to meet you guys finally. It's good to meet you as well. It does. Yeah, it feels like we've already met, even though we obviously have not. And hopefully it'll happen in person at some point. Yeah, hopefully. I'm planning on moving to the States, so... Maybe then. Really? Um, be, Very nice. Yeah. Nashville. Awesome. I'm, oh. as, I'm excited. I'm wearing my cowboy boots. Anyway, <laughs> uh, before we get started, uh, for anyone who, if any person in my audience doesn't know who you guys are, can you guys give a brief introduction about who you are and what it is you do? Take sure. it away, Brett. <laughs> Uh, Heather and I are evolutionary biologists who, until 2017, were professors at the Evergreen State College. As the college melted down, we were dragged into the spotlight as we were chased off of campus by a deranged mob that had mistaken us for racists. Um, we now function in the virtual world. We are hosts of the Dark Horse podcast, which we do live streams on. Uh, uh, every Saturday, um, sometimes not Saturday, but generally Saturday, we have been uh, visiting fellows at Princeton for the last two years, and we are the co-authors of the book, A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century. Let me just add one one additional dimension, which is that as evolutionary biologists, we worked in the tropics. And so Brett did a lot of his dissertation work in Panama, and I did mine in Madagascar, and I ran study abroad trips in Panama and Ecuador. And the final one Brett and I did together with, you know, 20 
30 students and our then um, young, younger children for 11 weeks through many, many ecosystems in Ecuador from Galapagos to Andes to Amazon. So that's, you know, the kind of evolutionary biology we have done ranges from trying to understand, you know, the migration patterns of butterflies to, you know, the tent making back to activities of bats, the sexual lives of poison frogs, and of course, how humans have evolved throughout time and space. You guys are so cool. Okay, so I brought you on to talk about your new book, A Hunter Gathers Guide to the 21st Century. And that will be out by the time this podcast is out. When is we it getting published? We are September excited. September 14th. Yep. September 14th, 14th September. that's right. That's so cool. How long have you guys been working on the book? Gosh, we've been talking about it for over a decade, haven't we? Um, it, it is born of the ideas that uh, we were generating back in grad school, really, in the 90s when, when Brett was working in Panama and I was working in Madagascar. And um, the sort of the applied nature, you know, there's a, there's a heavy theoretical aspect to the book, especially in the beginning. We introduce readers to established evolutionary theory and also um, to a number of new things that we are bringing to the field that we feel are necessary updates to understanding how evolution works and specifically how humans have evolved. And then we go through just sort of all of these aspects of human behavior, chapter by chapter, you know, health, medicine, food, sleep, sex, gender, on and on and on and on, uh, and provide some applied wisdom, we hope, um, to help modern people live a life that both respects what our history was and how we can move forward. And that's that developed really in part from conversations in the classroom, in the labs, in the field, um, around campfires with students over those 15 years or so that we were professors. And we were professors at a place, Evergreen, and in a way that we came to know our students really, really well. And so we came to understand how, how they were understanding the broken world that they were inheriting. And that in part, you know, our generation and the generations before us had helped make. And, you know, how can how can we all together help create a better future than the one that many people seem to think is the only one that is possible? I should probably add, since many in your audience will have had some familiarity with what happened to us at Evergreen at the very end of our uh, teaching careers there, that none of the students in that deranged mob were ours, that our students were uh, quite loyal to us. And in fact, the genesis of this book involves many of them um, insisting to the extent that they could insist that we bring the model that we were using to teach them to a wider audience. They, Many of them experienced it as transformative of the way they viewed themselves and their own lives. And they wanted to be able to pass it on to others who weren't going to end up taking our classes, maybe people at other other schools. And so uh, at the point that we found ourselves in a position that we could write essentially any book that we wanted, it made sense to write this book that we have been asked for many times. Okay. So I think maybe we should start with humanity's reaction to COVID. I assume that you get into that in the book. So is the is the reaction and how split everybody is right now, is that explained by evolution? Well, let's just say it's not 
in the book because we actually finished the first draft. We uh, finished it in the Amazon. Heather and I went to a, a very remote field station called Tipitini, which is in the most diverse habitat on earth. We went there to finish up what we had been doing. And, and that was January, 2020. It was January, 2020. Okay. As we emerged from the Amazon, literally as our phones woke up for the first time in a couple of weeks, we heard of novel coronavirus for the first time and wondered whether this was going to be, you know, yet another close call like the original SARS and MERS or whether it might be something more. But the book was finished before uh, COVID happened. That said, the toolkit in the book does allow one to work independently and to analyze what one is hearing about the progression of the pandemic and our response to it. And, and we have found ourselves uh, very uncomfortably in some controversy as a result of the fact that a proper grounding and evolution does suggest that our response to this pandemic is uh, largely incoherent. Um, so that's probably not where we should spend our time today. But... Okay. Okay. Well, when okay. I... and go on, sorry, Heather, you go ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, one of, one of the interesting things about the timing was that as Brett said, we, we um, submitted the first draft and of course we had some more drafts. And so we did add a few little things here and there. We do have an afterword that just very, very briefly addresses sort of what the, what the global response to COVID has, has looked like. Um, but our, what we then did almost as soon as we submitted the first draft of the book was we started this podcast of ours, Dark Horse that Brett already yeah. mentioned. And that was started in part as a response to what we were seeing is very confusing public messaging, public health messaging around COVID. And so, you know, from the very beginning, for instance, we were saying, um, wow, the, re the, the evidence suggests, for instance, that this is not a virus that transmits outside. This is not a disease that you end up getting if you're outside. And furthermore, if you do get it, if you spend time outside, you're probably going to be better off. And so um, really it's the, the logic that we are trying to introduce people to in the book, the evolutionary logic of how is it, you know, what are humans at an evolutionary level, and how can we understand understand ourselves from our historical perspective, and also from the perspective of how we have to move forward, so as to best make decisions, and not just make decisions, but interpret the pronouncements that are handed down from on high. You know, are, do those pronouncements make sense, or don't they? So rather than follow the scientists, you know, f follow a scientific interpretation of the world and try to make sense of it for yourself. That said. Uh, one of the central themes of the book is something we call hypernovelty, which is a state of change that is so rapid that it outstrips our capacity to evolve in response, which is a remarkable thing because human beings are by far the fastest evolving creatures that exist because so much of what we do is actually in the software layer rather than in the hardware layer. It can change extremely rapidly, but the pace of change is just simply too high. And all through the pandemic, you can see um, that this is occurring. I mean, even just the simple fact of the rate at which this disease spread around the globe is the result of new technologies that epidemiology yeah. uh, is um, now taking advantage of, like air travel, for example. Okay, so let's talk about this hyper novelty thing for 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 a sec. So one of the experiences I think my family's had, and you guys have definitely had, um, is that. I guess I've been put in a position, my dad's certainly been put in a position where things are happening so quickly that, like you said, you can't adapt. And so everything mm -hmm. seems a bit fake. 
And I would say most of society at the moment is probably in a similar situation with the pandemic where it's like, is this, is this real? So mm -hmm. do you guys have ways to combat that? Because I assume things are just going to get weirder and faster and weirder and faster with technology. So are there things we can do to get out of this to like calm, I guess, our nervous systems down and adapt properly? Yeah, I mean, it depends on the domain, but but yes is a short answer. And you know, one of the things to do is to recognize that it is the rate of change itself that is speeding up and to do what you can, um, you know, first at the individual level to to slow your own experiences down and that and, and to make them more real, more embodied. And that, of course, is more difficult in a pandemic era where so many of us are connecting over Zoom, over over social media, um, but also to recognize and, you know, this is this may seem like it's unrelated, but I but I think it's related and it's definitely a theme throughout the book that um, humans as many of us as think we are innumerate and, you know, many people are sort of proudly dis describe themselves as I don't do math. I don't understand numbers. It is still a, a tendency to, once they hear a number, once they hear that this thing is better than that, or that this gives you a hundred percent chance of something, right. That it's those numbers that you stick with. And there's a reductionism that this obscures that is is really an error and you know people imagine that if it's if it's a number it's scientific and so we go after this what you know what we think of as a pseudoscientific approach to an understanding of the world that you can use scientific tools where you're trying to recognize patterns and you know as much as you can about what it is that you are as a human being and you recognize patterns and you move forward with with care and rigor and compassion for other human beings but you don't assume that just because something has been measured that that's the thing that should have been measured or that it is being yeah. conveyed to you properly uh, so that's that's part of it it's also, I mean, it's consistent with not being overly focused on the quantification, but the fact is you're you're looking at patterns and they function, especially in the realm of biology, in a logical way. And so one could, in the early days of the pandemic, for example, make a lot of headway by simply reviewing the evidence that was emerging. And so we looked at the evidence that said that a huge number of cases in Asia had been looked at, and with one exception, none could be traced to an outdoor environment. And we thought, well, that rather changes everything, doesn't it? It makes it appear potentially like, although we are being told that everything is dangerous, that in fact, most of the world above 99% that's outdoors might well be safe. Well, what does that mean? It could mean a number of things. It could mean that UV light from the sun is killing the virus, in which case you need to be careful at night and not during the day. Well, it turned out UV light does kill the virus, but the virus still didn't transmit outdoors at night. And so the model developed. And what we said back then was take advantage of this. This is a great loophole that the, the pandemic has in it that we can make use of, that we can live normally outdoors. But we have to be very careful because viruses that come from wild creatures and one way or another, this one ultimately has to have come from bats. Those viruses have to transmit outdoors. And so if this virus has forgotten how to do that, it will learn it again if we give it that opportunity. So we, we cautioned people, make use of the outdoors, take advantage of it, restore your psychology by behaving more normally outside, but be cautious. Don't give it the chance to move or it will learn this trick and we will lose that advantage. And all of that was just simply a matter of looking at evidence, figuring out what the patterns were and extrapolating carefully from them. Okay. Well, that makes sense to me. That's certainly not what we did, but it makes sense. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by understandmyself.com. 
That's the personality test I'm going off about all the time. It's developed by my dad over the last 30 years with help from two other PhDs at McGill and Harvard. You get a specialized, personalized report after completing the understandmyself.com assessment. It will help you understand your personality in seriously uncomfortable detail. Understandmyself.com also allows you to create a relationship report with your romantic partner. I wanted to stick this ad in here because mom and dad are doing it and we're going to do an interview about it and I'm super excited. Stay tuned for that in the next month or so. Once you and your partner have completed your own assessments, you can connect them to create a report providing a description of what you might expect from being in a relationship together. Be careful there. Go to understandmyself.com to get a better understanding of how you function and interact with people. It's understandmyself.com, code MP for 10% off. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Not, not to sidetrack the conversation or anything, but um, one part of your book, you, you spoke about how religion is adaptive or it, it's some sort of focus that perhaps humans need as a species. Can you guys get into that a little bit? I've been on a, a Bible reading kick, which is like the first time in my life that I've read the Bible and thought about it properly. And it's been improving my life. So I saw that part of your book and I was like, okay, let's get into this a little bit. Yeah. Well, let's put it this way. We, we, in our evolutionary toolkit, we teach people how to figure out whether or not things that they are interested in are a product of adaptive evolution and religion clearly passes the test with flying colors. It is extremely expensive. That is to say the investment that religious people put into their beliefs, the number of things that they are forbidden to do as a result of those beliefs. That's very costly. It is complex and it is evolutionarily longstanding. In fact, all successful cultures have had mystical belief systems. So there's no way it's not consistent with evolution and really no way it could be, have been produced by a different process. But then the question is why, especially yeah. in light of the fact that religious traditions don't agree with each other about cosmology, they can't all be correct. Why is it that belief systems that appear to be in conflict with each other and with a scientific worldview have been so successful? And ultimately the answer is belief systems are not designed to be true. They are designed to be useful, right? If a belief system causes you to behave in a way that is consistent with your evolutionary interests, it is likely to spread whether or not it is a factual description of the universe. Now, the funny thing is, once you realize that, then you also begin to realize that even our scientific view is somewhat perfectly literal. But a lot of things we describe in science are actually models at different levels of crudeness. And over time, the crudeness goes down and the literalness goes up. But even a scientific worldview has a certain amount of this metaphorical belief in it. And, you know, we shoot for a scientific worldview in which that is minimized, but it, it's not zero in any field yet. And in some fields like biology, where we're still quite new uh, in the process of discovery, there's an awful lot of metaphor that does not line up perfectly with what's going on inside of cells or creatures. And so the phrase that we use in the book and have used elsewhere um, 
is that many things um, that are conveyed in the world, including in many religions, are literally false, but metaphorically true. And that metaphorical truth has in it the, the value that explains why people use it going forward. And so while, uh, while a cover story that a person of a particular faith or mythology gives you may not actually square with the underlying physical reality of the universe, that does not mean that that story isn't inc incredibly valuable. And so one of, one of the stories that we provide in the book is of farmers in the Guatemalan highlands who uh, say that uh, planting their crops on the full moon, is it planting or harvesting actually? Um, it is planting. It's planting the crops on the full moon um, allows those farmers to uh, basically be in good with their gods, that they are that that is that is the way to guarantee crop success because that is what the gods want, and it's really very hard to imagine that um, that the moon uh, is having any effect on crop success at all, and yet this belief persists. And when a couple of researchers went and looked, it turned out that indeed uh, those farmers that acknowledged and abided by this ancient belief that the gods smile on you when you plant on the full moon had better crop success, they had to ask why. Like what what could the moon possibly have to do with this? And the you know the modern scientific interpretation of what the of the explanation is is that if you coordinate, if you synchronize the timing of your crops such that you are also all harvesting, such it's all coming into ripeness and harvest time at the same time, you effectively satiate your predators, the crop predators. All of the things that would eat the crops um, are have all of the crops available to them at the same moment. And so instead of having a succession of crops to eat, everything that would be eating the crops has it all at once. And so everyone gets some of their crops eaten, but no one gets all of their crops eaten. And so whereas this, if you were to plant when it was convenient for you, the first person whose crops reached edibleness would have their crop eaten and the population of yeah. the pests would grow. And so only by planting them all at the same time does the population of pests not have a chance to grow. And therefore, it's the smallest uh, amount of consumption across the entire landscape. Right. So, you know, do, do the Guatemalan farmers in the highlands of Guatemala have the terminology of predator satiation and, and, and such? No, they do not. But um, have they effectively recognized that the moon is a giant sky clock? Right. And that by by following the giant sky clock and synchronizing on the basis of that, that they have better success. That's fabulous. And that does, you know, that does not suggest that they are, um, that, you know, that they are somehow stuck in a time past that has no relevance for now. It absolutely has relevance. And the fact that the story that goes along with the behavior that is adaptive isn't literally true actually doesn't matter. That is so cool. That's so cool. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like God is a simpler explanation than the Predator satiation. Wow. My Predator words. satiation. Yes. Saci satiation. Jeez. I have a hard time with that. Anyway, that, yeah, that's very interesting. Okay. Another section of your book, you talk about birth control and women for better or for worse. So, better and worse. Yes, both. Better and worse? Sure. Okay. Okay. What's the worse? Well, the worse is that it used to be human social relations were rigged around certain realities of reproduction. Women, because it is very expensive to be stuck raising a child alone, were extremely careful not to engage sexually with men who did not demonstrate a willingness to commit to them. 
And the problem is that that's not a very fair system, right? For, to have women have to be on guard in order not to be stuck raising children alone is um, an asymmetrical burden. On the other hand, it does create a kind of coherence. And it had consequences that were positive for men also. If men, in order to uh, to be worthy of women enough to have a sexual relationship with them, had to demonstrate capacity in the world that would make them worth choosing and then demonstrate a willingness to commit, that actually created higher quality male behavior. And so many of the things about the world that functioned were born of this sexual asymmetry. So we have we have lost something. Uh, with the advent of birth control that was actually functioning. And we argue very strongly in the book that what we have gained is far greater, um, that we have actually achieved um, a, an, a set of opportunities for women um, to expand our role in the world beyond um, beyond childcare and sort of, you know, homework uh, that we were more limited to before we had the capacity to so control our, our reproductive lives. But pretending that it comes with no cost is, is a tragedy. And we need to figure out a way to potentially get back some of the value that we had before we had the control while not giving up the control that we now have. You know, the, the, the benefits of birth control are, are widely understood. And, um, and, you know, frankly, it, it benefits men too, because, you know, in those spheres, in, you know, basically in every sphere where there are at least some women who are interested in doing the work, um, having women be capable of doing the work and not having to, you know, worry that they may at any moment be sidelined by, um, by a family that they didn't necessarily want is of course good for everyone because it brings everyone who wants to contribute in any individual creative or Political sphere into that sphere, but but what has been lost is something. It's and it's not you know it's not anti-feminist to say so. It's just recognizing that what evolution handed us in this case um, happened to have a function to it, and and it's disappeared. So how can we how can we recreate the coherence of the relationships between the sexes without asking for a regressive backwards view of the world? And this is a, a theme across the book. Um, this is maybe one of the easier examples to understand, but in general, we're stuck in a predicament as essentially modern hunter-gatherers in a non-hunter-gatherer environment. We are stuck with the inability to go backwards. There's nowhere to go. We can't return to the 50s. We can't return to hunting and gathering. Um, and we must go forwards. But to go forwards involves figuring out what portion of that which made sense in the past can be retooled, can be preserved, and what needs to be added to it to make it coherent in the present. And in every case, we need to essentially renegotiate our relationship with each other and with our environment so that it stops making us unhealthy. Maybe one of the ways to fix that predicament between men and women, um, maybe Maybe the lack of religion at the moment is also contributing to that, because at least that gives you some guidelines on how to behave that we don't have. So perhaps keeping some of the scientific advancements we've made and then looking at the world in that kind of framework might be beneficial. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's it's very analogous that, uh, you know, we we aren't religious people, but um, not having a framework um, that was coherent and that at least aspects of which remain coherent today to, for instance, hand down to our children makes things much more difficult that, you know, we don't we can't assume that we should 
share with any of our neighbors, any of our children's friends and their families, a particular way of viewing the world or of, you know, coming together for Shabbat or for church or for whatever. Yeah. Right. And, and with that, of course, we've also lost the community that, are, that a religious uh, faith will tend to give to you. You know, so where do people meet now? They often meet online or they meet at work. And of course, that's just too difficult now. Like, you know, how, how is it that you're going to negotiate a potential romance at work? So where, where do you meet? You meet online or at bars or in other social situations yeah. that are ever more fraught and without shared rules. And I think too much of modernity imagines that any rule from the past is archaic and outdated. And fact is, some of them are. And some of them are outdated, but what they provided was necessary. So we need to figure out some new rules. We can't just say, well, then no rules is the best way to go. We need, we need some framing. That said, you know, we talk in the book about uh, a model for how it is that human beings move from one niche to another when one discovers that the wisdom of the ancients doesn't apply to the current environment. There's a natural process in which we bootstrap new ways of being. And so although this predicament is unlike any transition humans made before, the toolkit for dealing with such transitions is already present. And in fact, we're doing it right here. We're talking about what the predicament is, what it says. You know, we're recognizing that the, the modern pseudo sophistication that basically decides any sort of self-regulation in the context of uh, mating and dating is, you know, oppressive or stodgy. Well, that's nonsense. And so what we are expecting to see is that as people increasingly recognize that a free-for-all in the, the area of sex and romance is not causing anybody to be satisfied or happy, quite the opposite, that people will start opting out. And that means that they will end opting up, out of the free for all. Yeah. They're opting out of the free for all. And that what they will do is they will figure out crudely at first, what rules they want to abide by and interact with others who see the same picture. And over time, they will figure out how to improve those rules so that they're more effective at replacing uh, the values that were in the systems that were lost while not losing the gains that we've made through interventions like birth control. Mm. That sounds tough for people, like well, how to figure out, play a game together, figure out new rules for everything, take some from, from old rules and make up new ones. That seems like it's going to take a while. It, well. A, yes. as long as things start getting better quickly, it doesn't really matter that it takes a while. That's how human beings uh, change their, their position. It matters in the to me. Well, <laughs> right. But you already probably have a pretty good idea what some of the things that don't make sense are. And just simply recognizing others who see that same picture and, you know, limiting your interaction to, uh, to people of similar worldview is an obvious thing to do. So I think we've just we've done it very crudely because many of the you know technological enhancements seem like they just simply provide more of what's good and it takes a while to discover what the hidden costs are. And there and I mean I think part of the message that you've already alluded to Michaela is that we're going too fast. You know the rate of change is itself part of the problem. And so slowing down will inherently um hopefully, you know, change slow the rate at which we are progressing in poor directions, but it also means that we aren't going to get quick fixes. We will hopefully slow the rate of decay uh and find new better ways to move forward. 
you know, not, not moving backwards, not moving forward so quickly with so many uninvestigated changes um, that can't be undone, but moving towards something in, in all of these realms with regard to religion, with regard to sex and gender, with regard to, you know, with regard to food and school and, you know, just so many things moving towards a, well, an adaptive foothill in the language of evolutionary biology. And, you know, we don't claim in the book to provide a blueprint because, you know, any, anyone who does, anyone who says, I got this, I know exactly what it's going to look like. They can't. So they're, they're either fooling themselves or they're trying to fool you. And we do think that we can find our ways to, to many, hopefully of these adaptive foothills across many of these domains. And from then collectively, all, all of us humans working together, find our way up the adaptive slope to someplace better than we are now, because it really feels like across so many domains, we're in an adaptive Valley and it just feels dark and, and people are filled with despair for good reason. So when you guys talk about slowing down, what does that look like? Well, in, in what context? Okay. Say you, you mentioned diet, you mentioned gender, I would assume politics. Like, what, do you mean just not making any life changing and country changing decisions too quickly? Like what does slow down look like? Well, one of, one of the things would be with regard to diet, say, um, we talk in the book about some of the great successes of Western medicine antibiotics and vaccines and surgery are just three of the amazing successes of Western medicine. And that doesn't mean that at every moment you should apply those, those solutions to any given problem, right? There are problems for which those are not the solutions. We now know that the overprescription of antibiotics to livestock has made our livestock sick and our ecosystem sick and our people sick. And so slow down on taking a success and saying, I'm now going to globalize that. I'm going to take this thing, which is, yeah. is, is a grand success and generalize and globalize so quickly that it may be impossible to undo. So there are two tools that are really the mirror image of each other that we describe in the book. One is the precautionary principle where when something is new, you assume that it has hazards until it's demonstrated to be safe. And the other is Chesterton's fence, named after G.K. Chesterton, who first outlined uh, the logic of it. And in his formulation, if two people happen onto a fence that appears to have no value, and one of them proposes that maybe it should just be eliminated, the other person's response should be, not until you've figured out what the value of it was. Once you know that what the value of it was, you're in a position to say whether it still has that value. But until you know what the value of it was, you have no idea. You may be removing something very functional. And in fact, there are many examples in medicine and elsewhere where things that were very important were not understood to be so um, by a, an establishment that simply hadn't spotted their value yet. So moving slower means applying both of these things. When you come up with something new, I mean, you know, we all remember the the invention of the first smartphone, right? The first smartphone seemed a very interesting new way to do things, but it obviously carried huge <laughs> hazards with it. And it took over the world before anybody had a chance to, to notice what the hazards were, right? And it may be that it is in fact playing a huge role in our increasingly dysfunctional social uh, environment and the 
breakdown of institutions and governance that has followed along with it. So even something like the smartphone that seems like it's just going to be an enhancement to life is something one should treat with great caution at the point it's introduced. Yeah, I find it difficult to believe that going forward, things aren't going to get harder, aren't going to get harder. Like technology is going to take on, an, I, I assume, an entirely different even dimension. Um, and I don't understand how we can adapt to that without, I think, going backwards a little bit and not getting rid of the scientific achievements we've had, but simplifying lives. Like perhaps, this has only recently occurred to me, but perhaps living in a high-rise condo in the middle of a city surrounded by stressful people makes you more stressed because you haven't adapted to be surrounded by stressful people without also being stressed. And so you talk about getting into nature and how important that is. Um, and I think that kind of, I think that's kind of like going backwards a little bit. What do you guys think? It's, it's certainly hearkening back to an earlier time. Um, and yes, but when, when we say you can't go backwards, uh, we are really alluding to sort of a traditionalist, you know, usually a conservative view of like, wasn't it all great then? Like, wasn't there a moment in, you know, the medium past um, to which we can aspire? And we would say, you know, no, no. But have there been missteps in modern times that we absolutely should try to undo? For sure. And in fact, the, the sooner we do that, the better. And, you know, the idea that living in high rises, populated, you know, densely populated with a whole bunch of other stressed people may actually cause you to be stressed as well. At one level, of course, and another level, certainly science doesn't have the answers, all of the answers to why that should be the case yet. But just because we don't, again, with the reductionism, right? Like just because we can't pinpoint exactly all of the reasons why an evolutionary framework, an evolutionary lens allows you to say, you know what, this way of living is so new is so new that we couldn't possibly be fully adapted to it yet. Let's identify as many of the ways as possible that this is very counter to anything we've done before. Let's try to understand all of the ways that's likely to be harming us. But just because we may not have all of them does not mean that we should just forge ahead. Until and unless we can, I, until and unless we can demonstrate that this is actually safe. Again, yeah. the precautionary principle would suggest just you know, you know, or if you know, if for whatever reason you are obliged to live that way, um, try you know, do your best to get out into some kind of nature with some kind of regularity. It's amazing. I mean, this is again just sort of you know, mechanistic, very small level science. But even just having a tree visible outside your window provides um, enough access to nature that people have lower levels of stress hormones. Like it, you wow. know, it, it, that's not, that's not enough, but it's, it's also at the same time enough to make things better. So, you know, you don't need to go back fully to nature. You don't need to spend the two weeks in the Amazon that we did while we were finishing this book. Although we recommend it to anyone who can manage <laughs> that it's extraordinary, but really just having anything that isn't of the social, that isn't of the human made around you and being free of the, of the thoughts and the voices and the sounds and the smells of the, of other people for some period of time, as regularly as you can, will help you recenter yourself and remember what it is that you actually care about. Like, you know, what is it that you as an individual could be doing that could make the world a better place for you and the ones you love and everyone. And it's harder to do that when you're constantly getting input from all the other people. So we talk in the book about um, us having 
cautiously begun to retool traditions that we inherit from religion. And so our Hanukkah tradition in the house involves a different principle for each night of Hanukkah that we talk about with the kids. And as they get older, they understand it with more and more sophistication. And one of the principles involves uh, what we call a need for reversibility. So in a situation where you are condemned to confront technological change and you can't possibly know what the implications are going to be, it would be foolish to adopt anything that you couldn't unadopt upon the discovery that it was more harmful than it was beneficial. And so how do you operationalize that? It's a difficult puzzle, but whether we should recognize that anytime we do something we couldn't undo if we had to, that we are putting ourselves in danger, even just that simple recognition makes us safer. Interesting. Okay. That makes sense. You spoke earlier about hanging around people who have the proper worldview, but I would assume that um, uh, many of the people that I disagree with probably think that they have the proper worldview. So there are tricks. Are there tricks to figuring out whether or not your worldview is the proper worldview or is a healthy worldview? Well, you can't know if your worldview is the proper worldview, and probably none of ours are the proper worldview. Even those of us who work quite hard to get it right are liable to be imprecise uh, fairly often. But one trick that I've learned is when you have a divide between you and others, figuring out where that divide begins is um, often incredibly enlightening. So, for example, um, I'm a, <clears throat> a liberal and I believe that environmentally we've made terrible errors, that we are degrading the planet at a rapid rate and that we have an obligation to do something about it. And I know that if I walk into a room of conservatives, that we're going to differ in all likelihood about uh, global climate change. But I also know that I can ask an audience of conservatives, I can say, well, if you believed that human beings were altering the atmosphere in a way that was going to substantially change the temperature of the planet in a way that was going to degrade its quality for future generations, would you be interested in engaging a solution that would slow or halt that process? I always get agreement on that question. And so then I know that what we really differ over is whether or not this is happening or whether or not it is human caused and what the solutions might be. But that's half of the difference that might exist between us erased in one question, right? Now we know that what we really need to talk about is, well, what is the evidence that's happening and what are the solutions that might work? And that's a much easier discussion. So I guess the, the upshot is figure out what you actually disagree about before you start disagreeing. Yeah. And I would add, um, you know, people, you should engage with everyone at some level, right? Like people who you disagree with, especially you are likely to learn more from them if you can speak to each other with civility. But there are a couple of things that I tend to look for and that I think are valuable, probably universally, no matter, no matter what other demographic things are true of you, you know, religious, atheist, old, young, white, black, female, male, doesn't matter. You need to be not just willing to, but um, adamant that you will error correct when you discover errors and have a curiosity ah. about the world. So error correction and curiosity. And those two things get you a long, long way. And you know that that's not an encapsulation of the scientific method. That's not sufficient. It's there's not enough formalism there. But those two things get you a long way to that, like error correction and curiosity and exposing yourselves 
to people who don't agree with you will actually allow you to modify your worldview such that it probably, hopefully, will come into better agreement with what is actually true. Yeah. So basically being okay with being wrong. Absolutely. And, and you know, I think, I think this is farther down the list of importance, but taking enough risks in your thinking, and I would say also physically and psychologically, but we're talking sort of analytically, creatively right now, taking enough risks in your thinking that you are wrong sometimes. Like if you're never wrong, you're probably not taking enough risks. And so that means though, that you will have to do the error correction and coming back to people and saying, man, I was wrong. That sucks, right? It doesn't feel good. So if you're going to be someone who is pushing the boundaries of what you yourself understand and what you know, that is basically going to guarantee that you will have to sometimes say to people, I was wrong. Here's how I know. Here's what I think now. I may still be wrong, but I know I was wrong about that. And you have to be willing to do that. This is why you should never be 100% certain about anything. I feel like in the past, whenever I got stuck into a frame of mind where I was like, oh no, 100%, this is it. I always just got walloped. It hasn't, it's happened a few times with like autoimmunity and the medical system and like, oh, diet plays a role type of thing where it was like, everything I believed was completely wrong. I was like, oh, that hurts. And yeah. so now I, I just try and be careful. Like if I ever feel too certain about something, I'm like, ah, maybe there's something there to poke around into. Absolutely. Yeah. This is actually something that Brett has done with our boys in particular with regard to asking them how certain they are of a conclusion. Right. right. And and yeah. anytime they say 100%, it's like, well, now I know what you're doing wrong. Right? You're, <laughs> you're being categorical. And it's not that it's not that there aren't things that you could work your way to near certainty about. But if you didn't start out with, you know, if you didn't start out with some doubt, then it's very unlikely you figured out what might be wrong with your perspective. And it's also a very useful trick when you are talking to somebody who has a perspective that conflicts with yours, asking them what they think the chances are that they are substantially in error will force them to reveal that they haven't checked into the question, or it will cause them to recognize that there actually is some room for doubt and to figure out where it exists. And those are keys forward. Oh, I really like that. I'm so glad I found some other people who do that. That's <laughs> how my conversations with people go. I'm like, no, no, I'm like 94% sure about this. No, 87. Okay. Like only 60 but 60, but I'm glad that yeah. I'm glad that that's not just a me thing. That's no, fine. no, no. It's and it's, it can be baffling to people. Right. But, um, <laughs> but it's so useful. It's so useful. Yeah, definitely. Okay. I have some other more questions here that I want to get to before I, um, before I let you guys go, you talked about, okay. So I'm talking about, you know, allergies, autoimmunity and all this stuff because of what happened to me. And you guys talk a bit about how that's a result of too much change too quickly, potentially. So can you get into that a little bit about allergies, autoimmunity, this, how North America is kind of ill at the moment, not just with COVID, but with actual, you know, obesity, depression, et cetera? Yeah, sure. Um, first, the thing to realize is if you were to stand on a street corner and just watch people walk by you'll see a tremendous amount of pathology and that isn't normal, right? If you were to hang out in a forest and watch creatures go by, you probably yeah. would see essentially none. And some of that is about the fact that when pathology arises, a uh, predator will often take advantage of it. But a lot of it has to do with the fact that we are just doing so many novel things that are causing pathology 
And in many cases, we don't have any idea what they are. And so, you know, it is an amazing fact that if you stand on that street corner, you will see obese people walk by regularly. We know obesity is unhealthy, that it degrades life. And we also know that whatever it is that causes that is something that is happening to them after they've been at least conceived and probably born, which means that if we could figure out what it was and stop doing it, we could cure that problem. How much human well-being would be increased if we cured that problem? So the fact that we are not obsessed with figuring out the root cause is odd. Yeah. But we talk, for instance, about the hygiene hypothesis, uh, which is not new with us, but the idea that we have, again, with the antibiotics, really, you know, we have, we have overcleaned our environments. We have made our environments so sterile um, by misunderstanding uh, that microorganisms, basically, and imagining that everything uh, that is bacterial is bad. And so this, you know, this is a trend that started before we came to understand the gut microbiome and we still don't understand it as you're well aware, but we understand it a lot more than yeah. we did 40 years ago. And so the idea we that we, contain, we know it exists exactly. <laughs> and start. the idea that we contain multitudes and that wiping out those multitudes because we're scared of some germs is probably bad for us is, you know, really base level. Like it really is not a, a finesse understanding, but it does provide a framework for understanding what a lot of autoimmune disorders disorders probably um, are emerging from allergies. And then there's a similar kind of, oh, I've got the solution, therefore I'm going to generalize it, reductionism in, for instance, um, our approach to, uh, you know, it's just the, the molecules that we have exaggerated. Sugar tastes good, right? And so we are going to concentrate it and put it in everything to make <laughs> us want more. And, you know, that's, that's our modern environment, taking advantage of our ancient desires, add markets, and we're off to the races. So the immune system is a developmentally sensitive, literally a complex system. It requires that in your early life, it has the correct um, exposures to detect the difference between the molecules that you yourself make and the molecules that you don't make. And literally what it, what it determines is very early in development, it recognizes those molecules that you make before you're born, before it's exposed to the outside world, and it eliminates the fraction of immune cells that react to those molecules. So what's left over are immune cells that only react to molecules you don't make. Now, the problem is that system is not supposed to encounter, for example, things that you eat. Yes. Things that you eat are not molecules that you make. And therefore, if your immune system is allowed to see them, it will yeah. regard them as hostile, just as it will regard pollen as hostile, and it will react to it. And so uh, these food sensitivities are like an autoimmune disorder to your food, right? An autoimmune disorder in the narrower sense is you reacting to your own molecules as if they were the molecules of a foreign invader. All of these things are going to be the result of exposures that are novel. That is to say, if you had developed in your ancestral environment, the inputs to the system would not have caused you to react to your food or to your own molecules in this way. So the question again, as with the obesity question is, well, what is the root cause of the immune system encountering molecules that it shouldn't be seeing or having the wrong reaction? And how can we stop how can we stop doing that so those in the future will not experience those things? And again, we're not nearly curious enough about the question. 
we're much more interested, for example, in treating these things as chronic conditions than figuring out why they happened and not causing them anymore. I just read an article this morning, so I'm, I'm very into the autoimmune research and anything that has to do with leaky gut specifically, so food sensitivities and autoimmunity. And I read an article this morning that was like groundbreaking news, leaky gut contributes can contribute to rheumatoid arthritis and here's the drug to fix it and i was just like okay so like another 30 years before they link leaky gut to diet uh, i don't know do you think things are going to get better well they have to right i mean they they have to we're on a trajectory in which they can't they can't get worse much longer and so in some sense that's frightening but it's also the thing that is likely to cause people to wake up and recognize that we have a system, for example, a system where markets find any opportunity where something can be sold at a profit and exploit it. And some fraction of what's being sold at a profit is actually harmful to us. And so uh, we have to recognize that this system being allowed to run its course is damaging people and we have to rein it in. Will we do it? Very hard to say, but um, certainly the first step is recognizing that that process is going to continue to have us uh, cause disease at all levels, and uh, we should certainly be attempting not to do that. Yeah, I hope so. I feel like just looking at, well, maybe Soviet Union or other situations that got pretty turbulent, I feel like things got more turbulent than they are now before they switched directions. So it's a bit concerning. It is concerning. Yeah. And this, and you know, every moment that you're living through is later than all the previous instantiations. And so, you know, we've got more novelty, more hyper novelty, more yeah. technological advancement now. And so, it, you know, history will not repeat itself, you know, to what degree it will rhyme. We don't yet know. Okay. Okay. I've got a few more questions. You guys talk about gender and monogamy and how part of at least part of that is adaptive so can we get into that a little bit uh, uh, we are very much in favor of both gender and monogamy <laughs> they're both excellent um <laughs> yeah well let's let's separate these issues when you say gender you're really talking about uh the gender phenomenon norms. of people um switching genders yeah. or ascribing to different genders than yeah. uh, than they were when they were younger. So there's a very ancient history of people uh, functioning as what we would now call trans that exists in many cultures. What is not ancient is the ability to alter one's physiology with hormone interrupting drugs uh, or to alter their bodies with surgery. It is also the case that the pattern in which people are um, telling us that they feel that they are a different gender than the one uh, that we would... Um, that follows their sex. That we would, yeah, that follows their sex is the right way to say it, is suggestive of a contagious process. And that that is likely not a natural phenomenon. It is likely a result of things like uh, cell phones and social media causing belief systems to be transmitted in a novel way, which suggests that those uh, are likely to be very unhealthy patterns. So let me take a slightly different tack. I mean, I think gender and monogamy are um, 
are distinct, um, pretty distinct in my mind, uh, because we have what some will view as a uh, traditional regard for monogamy, but it doesn't come from traditional uh, logic. It comes from evolutionary logic. And we have a very untraditional, or at least I do, and I I think we must both, I have a very non-traditional view of the value of almost all gender norms. So, you know, gender is the behavioral expression of sex. Sex is binary. Sex is at least 500 million years old in our lineage alone, maybe closer to one and a half billion years old. It's not, um, it doesn't change in, in mammals. You can't change your sex. Gender being the behavioral manifestation of sex and us being a species that is actually much more monogamous, and um, there's lots of evidence for this, but much more monogamous than really any of our close relatives, um, you would expect that the behavioral manifestations of our sex would be more flexible in us than they are in many other species. That the reasons to have very different female female behaviors and from okay. from male behaviors are not nearly as strong in a species that is has you know relatively low levels of sexual dimorphism as we have. Um, but then it's also obviously true that we do have sexual dimorphism, that we are different, that women are different from men, and that women will always be um, constrained by some aspects of anatomy and physiology by gestation and lactation, right? That's never going to be the domain of men and pretending otherwise is just reality denying. So, you know, are there things that are downstream of being, of being female and therefore capable of bringing a child into the world and, and suckling that child at your breast? Of course there are. Um, Can men be paternal in a way that is like Uh, a maternal engagement with their own offspring? Yes, they can, but that is newer. And so it's not going to be as, it's not going to be the default in the way that maternal behavior with their own, with their own babies will be. So I would say, you know, gender nonconformity is fabulous. If that's, you know, if that's who you are and it was who I was, um, that's terrific. And gender nonconformity is very different from gender dysphoria. Gender nonconformity is just like, Hey, you know, I I was a tomboy. I vastly prefer doing math and climbing trees to playing with dolls and having tea parties. I just never did the, never did the dolls and tea parties thing. And I did a lot of playing in the dirt and with numbers. And I never once thought I was a boy. I never once told by anyone, if you like math, you're a boy. In part, guess what? That's regressive. That's outdated regressive yeah. sexism is what that is. So it's also true that um, I'm in a stable, long-term, loving, monogamous relationship that's also heterosexual, and we've got two beautiful children. And okay, I didn't happen to love pregnancy at all, but um, <laughs> I loved everything else past pregnancy. And it wasn't that it was because I really thought I was a man or anything like that, right? Like there are things that are just prescribed and like it or not, it's true. You know, if you want to have children that are genetically your own and you're female, you're going to end up bearing them. You know, there's some modern technologies which allow people to do that who really have no other way around it. But, you know, we, we are the result of three and a half billion years of evolution. And for almost half of that, probably we've been sexual beings. Still getting around it. How we behave in the modern world with regard to our norms almost all of that is flexible and almost all of that flexibility is to the good. Yeah. I will say Heather was terrible at being pregnant, but I would have been worse. <laughs> yeah, so, I was going to say, uh, you, you try it. Then. Yeah, no, I believe me. You, you did beautifully from my perspective, uh, <laughs> no, was terrible. not least because you freed me from the burden of attempting it. But, um, 
let's let's get to the the point about monogamy though. Uh, our, our point in the book is that monogamy is a complex story. The fact that we have sexual dimorphism, it's not a radical sexual dimorphism, but there's a difference in average size between males and females. And that says that there's a long history of non-monogamy in humans. That said, the Wait, fact is- Sorry, I have to slow down there for a sec. What okay. What's suggested of a long history of non-monogamy? When you look at species that are monogamous, if you look at gibbons, for example, you will find that males and females are the same size, right? That they are armed similarly. And the reason is because if the system has sexual conflict, if males are trying to exclude each other from mates, then they end up being favored in species like ours to be larger, right? Because size allows them to displace other males. Larger and with greater weaponry, like in terms of muscle mass or bigger teeth, you know, just the ability to fight with, with the weapons they've got. So females are closer to the ecological optimum of what the species should be. And then males are distorted by sexual competition. Um, in other species, species that compete in three dimensions, males can end up being smaller because agility in flight, for example, may be the mode of competition. Mm. But and, and sometimes the competition may be about song or colorful plumage, or, you know, it can look a lot of ways, but the men, the men, the males will tend to be in polygynous species, showier in some way. And as, as Brett says, you know, farther off, what would be the ecological optimum for the species if there were no sexual competition going on? So we are a sexually dimorphic species. We are not radically so, but we are somewhat so, which says there's been a lot of polygyny. But that we said, are less so than our closest relatives. Right, less so than our closest relatives, which means that recent evolution has reduced that dimorphism. We've been moving in the direction of monogamy. And more to the point, the recent history of our species is one in which monogamous cultures have flourished and spread and so most people alive on earth today come from cultures that are monogamous. And so as much as our ancient history may involve some degree of polygyny, our modern evolutionary history points in the direction of monogamy. And from our perspective, we shouldn't really care what evolution wants for us. Evolution is not an honorable process, but we can understand that the advantages that caused monogamy to uh, spread in recent evolutionary history are advantages that we should value, and therefore we should stabilize monogamy in humans. So those advantages include mm. a reduction in violence, a reduction in warlikeness, so violence within your population, right? And the tendency of a population to attack other populations will be increased by polygyny, which tends to sideline a certain number of males, right? For every male who has multiple uh, partners, there will be at least one male who has none. Those sexually frustrated males who are left out of mating and dating can very easily be turned into an army to seek uh, profit abroad. And uh, frankly, the history of warfare is one with a, an awful lot of sexual violence associated with it, too. So, Right. So just to be clear, the, the violence that is reduced as you move from a polygynous to a monogamous society will be both men against other men, but also men against women, that both of those kinds of violence will be reduced. Right. And um, the fact is human babies are incredibly labor intensive to raise. Yes. A monogamous culture is one in which that burden is distributed much more fairly, right? Because monogamous cultures bring all males who are uh, capable of being brought into child rearing into the 
um, into the system and therefore distributes the labor more broadly. It creates uh, siblings that are full siblings rather than half siblings. So their tendency to cooperate will go up. So the long and short of it is if you like things like a safer world in which war is rarer, if you like the idea that the labor of raising the next generation should be more broadly distributed, that it shouldn't fall so heavily on the shoulders of women, but should be shared between men and women. If, if you like any of these things, then really you want a monogamous system because it causes these things to happen. Um, and the, the advantages are really so unambiguous that this ought to be a primary concern. Unfortunately, the thing that seems to have favored, or at least the argument that we make in the book, the thing that seems to have favored the spread of monogamy is the expansion of human populations, because an expanding population uh, does better if it can grow faster. And because monogamy brings all of the adults who can, in principle, be involved in child rearing into that activity, it means the number of offspring that can be raised goes up. Oh. The flip side of this is that when you reach the end of an opportunity, when a population has grown and expanded as far as it can go, monogamy will tend to break down and males will again start displacing each other from mating opportunities, which is exactly what we're seeing, not just in what we think of as polyamory, which is really a euphemism, but in what we call serial monogamy, which is also a euphemism. Serial monogamy is really a name for what we should call serial polygyny. It is, in fact, individual males raising multiple families uh, in sequence, and that does have the tendency to exclude other males from any mating opportunities at all, which is going to bring about exactly the harms that we were discussing. Wow, that's so interesting. So, so that's a decline in society as well, potentially. But could that be, is that because our, it, why is that happening? Is that because there are too many people and it's just an evolutionary adaptation or is that because everyone's glued to their phones and going crazy? It's not really the phones. It was happening well before we had smartphones. Um, really what it is. Like 60s, is, 70s. It was kind of mm -hmm. happening then, right? It, it Yes. And w I think what we were really feeling is evolutionarily for game theoretic reasons, as you bump up against the limits of population, the outbreak of male-male competition and the tendency to favor this kind of behavior uh, goes up. Now, civilizations counteract that, right? It's very interesting that, for example, um, uh, Christianity has favored monogamy, mm -hmm. right? Even though Christianity obviously is a system in which powerful males who would be exactly those you would expect to benefit from polygyny have made the rules right yeah. so really what this is is an evolutionary paradox well or evolution is the solution to a paradox that we would otherwise see where powerful males have made rules that seem to favor less powerful males and others and the reason uh has to do with what we were just discussing but it enhances stability Right. It enhances stability. And therefore, the, these belief systems have been carried along with the behaviors that have enhanced the power of those who held those belief systems. And frankly, you know, I think I think you're right um, that sort of the 60s, 70s is when a lot of these things began to decohere some. And this gets us back to the point about things like birth control, which is amazing and necessary. And I don't 
know any women who would have us go back. Um, I don't know if I know any men who would have us go back, but I, I know that I don't know any women who would have us go back um, pre, um, you know, widely and freely available birth control. That said, once it became available, it allowed women to, um, to behave like not very interesting men sexually, <laughs> as opposed to encouraging men to behave like good women. Right. So we're like we went lowest standard denominator on sexual behavior instead and and used used wide access to birth control, which, again, is a boon as an excuse, as opposed to going like this is amazing. Let's now be be able to plan our families and not find ourselves trapped and thus in lives that we never intended for ourselves when it when there was a mistake that was made. Um, But rather, let's let's use this and also be our best selves and not not fall into you know the the cad strategy of men so why, wanna, you know why why should women behave like men at their worst yeah i, I want to refine one thing about this men have two reproductive strategies right one involves producing offspring that one does not invest in and the other involves producing offspring that one invests heavily in and when men are operating according to that second strategy, they are naturally similar to women in their choosiness and uh, their uh, their behavior. So yeah. really the question is, why in a system where technology has allowed us to effectively choose what kind of behavior we want to engage in, why would we default to that initial male strategy and try and induce women to behave that way rather than urge both men and women to their better high investment strategy, which makes uh, the world function, makes people happier, creates healthier children with good role models. We, we basically, we defaulted to the, the worst or the second worst mode, depending upon how you view it. Um, and we bypassed the obvious solution, which was to encourage um, responsible behavior in the context of mating and dating of a kind that has a very long history with humans. Well, I mean, people do that because it's more fun in the short term and we're not taught about long term fun. Um, Yeah. On the other hand, I'm not sure. I think it seems like it should be more fun in the short term, but people are really dissatisfied. And I think that they need to notice they've never been sexually freer, but it's hard to imagine an era in which there has been so much complaining about the sexual environment. Those two things are two sides True. of the same yeah. coin. That yeah. that freedom wasn't so wonderful. And the fact is, the we needed to be grateful for the freedom that was provided by birth control. And we needed to treat it carefully rather than see it as, you know, licensed to get rid of all of the rules and the coherence of the system. Yeah. And then at the point that we did that, foolishly. And it produced a huge amount of dissatisfaction and frankly, sexual violence and all sorts of other things. This is a place where reversibility has to be the key. If it Mm -hmm. didn't work, if it produced a paradoxical outcome where instead of being tremendously sexually satisfied, people are frustrated and angry about their sex lives, then maybe Mm -hmm. the answer is, well, where, where was our wrong turn? Yeah. Yeah. So we we imagine that simply maximizing freedom is always the thing that will make us most satisfied, and it's not inherently. And that exists at the same time as the recognition that the ancient system put much more of the burden on women, and that birth control has the capacity to relieve some of the 
unfairness, if you will, of the ancient system um, and and make it one in which men and women can both be their best selves um, out in the world. But it does not mean that we should simply act as if um, no constraint is the best policy because it's clearly not. As, as Brett said, you know, we, we taught undergraduates for 15 years and we knew them very, very well. And we heard from many of them how unsatisfying this yeah. world was with regard to um, relationships and expectations. Yeah, I agree. I think that goes for a number of things too, not just relationships and, and yeah. sex. And maybe if you're hooking up with a bunch of people, and you're miserable, you could try hooking up with fewer people. That seems, mm -hmm. it does seem a little counterintuitive. I can understand that. But I think that has to go with also, um, you know, screen time, diet too, just yep. overdoing it being like, you get a little bit of joy. So you're like, okay, that's the direction I should go in. But if you're overall, if you're overall unhappy with your life, then maybe you need to restrict some areas. I think that's smart. Yeah. Yeah. We talk, yeah. I mean, every, everyone knows the term junk food, but we talk about junk food, junk sex, junk entertainment, Yeah, you know, the junk, the junkification of the choices that are available to us, which exactly as you say, prioritize the short term over the long term. And those of us who have changed our diets, right, for instance, um, or who have always been on a diet that, that encourages the eating of real whole food, know that that's delicious. But if you currently eat junk yeah. food, you might imagine that will never taste good for me. You know, a salad will never taste yeah. good for me, but, but your body will learn to find it utterly delicious and yeah. to crave it. In fact, and the same will be true for sex. The same will be true for entertainment, um, but it will be a process. It's amazing um, how close the relationship is in all things between delayed gratification and wisdom. In other words, a child will gravitate to that thing that they want right now and that the adult recognizes that actually foregoing the thing you want right now and investing in something deeper, sometimes even over the course of years or mm -hmm. longer, is the way to ultimately end up more satisfied. But, you know, it's not intuitive for a child. And so in some sense, we are behaving in an increasingly childlike fashion across all of the human domains. And it's an error. Um thinking about the long-term is the way to go. Okay. Brett and Heather, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, if anyone listening isn't following you, where can they find you online? Uh, they can find us on the Dark Horse podcast. Uh, we do live streams every Saturday. They can find us on Twitter. I am at Brett Weinstein. You are at Heather E. Hying. Uh, they can find our book, well, does, do people buy books link anywhere but below. Amazon? Link, <laughs> link below. <laughs> you can find it at the link below. And again, that's a hunter-gatherer's guide to the 21st century. Yep. Well, congratulations, guys. Thank you very much for coming on. Nice meeting you finally. It's been such Thanks a pleasure. So much. It was Thank great. you.